It's Robbie. Um, if I haven't met you before, I am the pastor here at Hillside, or the lead pastor. Sorry, we have multiple pastors, but um, so glad that you're here with us this morning. I had a very honest question about 30 seconds ago from, uh, how old are you? I won't say your name, Beckett. Five, from a five-year-old. He said, Pastor Robbie, how long are you going to talk today? So, <clears throat> I'm sure the rest of you, because usually kids have the right questions, so I'm sure the rest of you are wondering the same thing. It should be shorter. I know we've had a lot in the service, but we just, like Dan said, so highly value our community groups. It's a really big deal to us. If you want to ask or you want to know what are we about, it's going to be, I mean, clearly we're about teaching the word. We're about community growing together. We're about serving our community. And so inside of that, we really would love for you to be a part of a community group. That's why we took that time for you to fill out those forms. It's too easy to go home and say, I'll do it later. Um, so we just gave you time now. But and pens, time and pens. So, um, welcome again to Hillside. We are this morning going to Psalm chapter 73. Psalm 73. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 73. Um, we've been in a series this summer, and I know for all of you who have started school or are starting tomorrow, you don't feel like it's still the summer, but we're finishing this series actually ne uh, on September 4th. And then we'll start a new series on the Lord's Prayer. But we've been through this series this summer where we've just been studying various psalms. And today we're going to be in Psalm 73. I read a story, it was a short story some time ago, and I don't know if it's true, and I honestly can't remember all of the details of the story, but it's not too far-fetched. And um, so I'll tell you my version of it. But it was about a father and a son. The dad was uh, of a very wealthy family, took his son on a trip to a different country with the firm purpose of showing his son how fortunate he was and how other people live in different countries. He wanted to show his son that maybe he didn't understand how good he had it and how other people who were poorer didn't have what he had. And so they spent a couple of days and nights with this very poor family on a farm. And on their re return trip home, the father asked the son, how was the trip? And the son said, Dad, it was great. Um, and the dad then said, did you see how poor people live? And uh, the son said, oh, yeah. Um, so what did you learn from the trip, the dad said. And the son answered, I saw that we have one dog, and they had four. He said, we have a pool that reaches to the middle of the garden, and they have a creek that has no end. He said, we have imported lanterns in our garden and they have stars at night. Our patio reaches the front yard and they have the whole horizon. We have a small piece of land and they, they have fields that go beyond sight. We have walls around our property to protect us and they have friends to protect them. And with this, the boy's father was speechless. And then his son added this statement, thanks dad for showing me how poor we are. It's a perspective thing. It's an interesting story, and honestly, it's really just about perspective, because for the dad, he had this clear perspective on what the son was missing in his life. And the son saw it completely differently. He, he believed that the grass was greener on the other side. They actually have more than I do. And 
I wanted to start this way this morning because a lot of times I think we do something similar in our walk with God. And hear me out on this, but we have this perspective where we go to God with our perspective on what would be better. God, this might be better for my life and you just don't get it. Or we go to God and we say a loving God would do this or a good God would not do that. And often our perspective of what the Christian life should look like doesn't always square with the reality that we're living. Psalm 73 is actually a passage where the psalmist, he's struggling with his perspective on God's goodness. It's really relevant to us, and you might say, how? Well, because it asks these questions. What do I do when my theology clashes with my reality? What do I do when my theology and my reality clash? How do we hold conviction that God is good when we look around and we struggle to see it. The writer of Psalm 73 is working through these types of questions, and in our psalm for today, uh, the writer's name is Asaph. And Asaph, we know this from First uh, Chronicles chapter 25, he's a Levite and he's a leader in David's choir. And so in modern day language, if you're looking for that, Asaph is really a worship leader. Um, for God's people, which means this. He's a prophet, and he knows who God is. He writes songs about God. He leads people of, uh, of God into worship. And so maybe you can imagine this. If we were to look at Asaph from the perspective of other people in Israel, because he's a worship leader, Asaph shouldn't ever really have any doubts in his Christian life from, from a perspective of a people that follow him in leadership. He's a professional worship leader. He's been educated in who God is. He, you could say he holds, holds a PhD in choir leading and Bible songwriting. But in this psalm, he's struggling. And today, I wonder how many of us might be able to identify with Asaph. I wonder how many of us maybe at some point in our lives have been able to identify with Asaph or at some point in our lives might be able to identify with Asaph. I I want us to see this morning that for Asaph and for you and me, that sometimes our biggest hurdle in our Christian life is our perspective. Look with me first at what Asaph wrote in Psalm 73, verse 1. It says this, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So the very first thing that we have to know is Asaph says what we would expect a good Christian boy choir director to say. He says what he knows he's supposed to say. Asaph begins this psalm with the simple declaration of what he knows to be true. God is good to his people. Asaph has been taught about God's goodness. He has a firm conviction God is good. That's an anchor for his soul. His family says it. He says it. In fact, if you went to Asaph's I don't know, kitchen, you would see over his dining room table, God is good. It's like on mugs and pillows and everything. He knows it's true. He isn't trying to disprove it. It matters to him that God is good. Asaph knows God is good, but then he looks around at the world that he lives in and he is confused by what he sees. He looks at the wicked world and his perspective, what he's looking at, causes him to struggle with what he knows to be true. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. They say this. 
God is good. And then he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Okay, whoa. God is good. Asaph knows that, but his perspective says to him, the things that he's looking at says that while God is good and he might be good, I am experiencing something different. His perspective is different than what he knows about God, which has brought him to this place of confusion and doubt about God. Asaph feels like he's on this slippery ground, and he says, I know God is good, but at the same time, I am envious of the people who are prospering in their wickedness. He says that he's on the verge of stumbling. And I don't need you to raise your hands, but the question that comes to my mind is how many of us can relate to Asaph this morning? We know the truth. We know that God is good. We've been taught that God is good. We've heard it a thousand times, but we struggle to see it when we look around. Let me start by saying something that I think that we all need to hear, and maybe you've never heard this, maybe you've heard it before, but doubts are not incompatible with being a Christian. Doubts are not incompatible with being a Christian. Asaph is a Godfather, sorry, God follower. He's not the Godfather. And maybe he is. Uh, he is a God follower. Doubts are not incompatible with responsible Christian living. Faith is a struggle sometimes, and Asaph is dealing with real-life faith right here. He's processing his struggle. I do want us to see this, though. It's important. He's not acting on his doubts. He's processing his doubts. Asaph continues in verses 4 through 16. I'm just going to read them real quick. They say this. So he's struggling, he's envious of these people, and here's what the wicked look like. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, which maybe doesn't sound like a compliment, but he's just saying they're enjoying life. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in their riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked. Sorry, I lost my spot. Uh, Every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You might be thinking, all right, I came to church this morning for donuts and encouragement, and this is depressing. Okay, well, we still have donuts, so there's a bright side. What is happening here for this man? The problem is that Asaph is facing a problem that we all face from time to time. And what is that problem? We misinterpret the goodness of God. We often think that the goodness of God translates into blessings. And Asaph is saying, look, all these people are blessed and I'm not. And so God must not be good. 
And at this point in Asaph's song, he is operating from the perspective of what he sees in the life of the wicked person. He believes that they are blessed. Three things are happening in these verses. I'll hit them real fast. Asaph envies how they live. You can see in verse 4, he envies that they die peacefully. In verses 4 and 5, he envies that they are blessed physically. In verses 6, 9, and 11, he envies that they flourish with pride. In verse 12, he is envious that they avoid pain. And in verse 12, he is also envious that they enjoy prosperity. He's envious of their lives. He also regrets how he lives. His perspective is focused on the flourishing of these people that don't honor God. And he concludes in verse 13 that all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He sees the things of the world, and he just feels like quitting on God. He felt as though he had actually wasted his time in serving the Lord, and it's quite a statement, and some of us flinch when we hear it, but it's one we maybe can identify with. We wonder sometimes whether it's really worth it to live in radical obedience to the commands of Christ. Sometimes we wonder, is it worth it to submit to the Scripture's standard for sexual purity? Sometimes we wonder if it's worth it to give of our finances because Jesus says to. Because we ask this question, is there really a reward in righteousness? And then Asaph wrestles with how God works. His questions are questions that we would have. He says, why does God allow this? Is he not powerful enough to stop this? If he is, then why doesn't he put an end to it? Asaph is in a rough place at the beginning of Psalm 73. His perspective is a human perspective. It's a natural perspective here. He's looking at life from what he can see. And something that we should be aware of is this. When we look at life and its problems from our human perspective, we will always focus our attention on ourselves. It's just going to happen. Everything will always come down to these kinds of questions. How does this affect me? What problems will I face now? When will I ever have relief Who cares about what I'm facing? I want you to hear me so clearly on this this morning. And and some of you will know what I'm saying, and some of you maybe will have questions. But natural thinking, human thinking, always results in disaster because it allows you to stand in the wrong place and see things from the wrong angle. Natural thinking always results in disaster because it puts you in a place that you were never meant to stand in. And you start seeing things from the angle of your God in your own life. And if you and I allow ourselves to fall into the trap of looking at life from a human perspective, we will, like Asaph, find ourselves in a place where we will begin to doubt what we know to be true of God. He knew God was good, but he's in this dangerous place at this point in this psalm. His perspective is causing him to question what he knows to be true of God. The question that maybe comes to mind for you, it does for me, is how can he change what he's thinking? How can that change for you and me if we're in that place this morning? How do we change how we're thinking? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
Look with me at the beginning of verse 17. It says this. So Asaph is struggling with how God, uh, wicked people are being blessed. And then he says this at the beginning of verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. <clears throat> of God. What does the psalmist do when he is struggling to see God's goodness? The answer could seem overwhelmingly childish or too much like what you might expect a pastor to say in a church, but the psalmist does this when he struggles to see God's goodness. He went to church. Sounds Sunday school, doesn't it? The psalmist went to the sanctuary of God and he came into possession of certain gripping convictions that steadied him and enabled him to walk with the firmness and assurance that he needed. Asaph did not get things sorted out until he went into the sanctuary of God. His perspective began to change when he met with God. But God's sanctuary is also a place where his people gathered for worship. So the implication is this in Psalm 73 verse 17. It's that up until this point, Asaph had been avoiding gathering with God's people in his sanctuary. Let me say something here that I just really want you to understand. I want everybody, every age to understand. But if you're in college today and you're wondering, should I spend any of my time at church? Or if you're a kid that's in middle school or high school or grade school and you wonder, like, is our mom and dad crazy and are they just forcing us to go to this thing? I want you to understand something about our walk with God. If you are a Christian and you desire to know and rely on the goodness of God, then you have to know this. Isolation feeds self-pity. Being alone, Dan said it a minute ago, makes it hard to follow Christ. Going to God's house helped Asaph gain understanding in several ways. We know that by prayer and worship in the sanctuary, he understood that God was at the center of all things, and so he gained a fresh perspective and appreciation of God and eternity. By hearing the word of God in the sanctuary, Asaph understood that there was a truth that went beyond what he could see and experience in his everyday life. And then something that's really important is that when Asaph went into the sanctuary by observing the sacrifice in the sanctuary, he understood that God takes sin so seriously that it has to be judged and atoned for, even if it is by an innocent victim who stands in the place of the guilty by faith. And that's why we talk about Jesus so much. I want us to understand something here this morning. This is one of God's great purposes in establishing a place where his people can come to meet him. A location is never meant to imply that there is only one or only a few places where a person can meet with God. Or that, that buildings have to be ornate or glorious. Or that we have to have new carpet and eventually new chairs. It, that's not what this is telling us. The point of a place is to emphasize that it is good for us to have a place separate from other places where we focus on heavenly, eternal perspective. Eternity is relevant. Asaph didn't need to go to church, to God's sanctuary, to hear about the news of the day. Asaph didn't need to hear about government or impeachments or who's being elected into what. Asaph did not need to hear about gas prices 
or any of that kind of stuff, Asaph needed the ultimate relevance to change his perspective. He needed to see that that life is bigger than just right now. Asaph needed the relevance of eternity. And so he came into the sanctuary and he saw others who believed in God and he walked with God in, or, and they walked with God in spite of their trials. And this is me just reading into the text here, which can be very dangerous. So just hear it as coming from my perspective, not from the word. But I like to believe that Asaph went into the sanctuary and he talked with some of the other people there about his problem. And they helped him to gain fresh perspective regarding eternity and God's goodness. So what happens when Asaph sees God in the sanctuary? Well, he remembers the future of the wicked. Look at the rest of verse 17 on into 19. They say this, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terror. So what's happening here is Asaph is in God's sanctuary and he sees the holiness of God and he sees that no man can stand before God unless they are covered by the blood of an innocent sacrifice. And so he sees to the end of the person who doesn't follow God and it shakes him because he discerns their end and there is no more debate in his soul for who has it better. And this may sound really silly, but I'm going to say it anyway because that's what I do. But last week, Our family was at the Clay County Fair, and we looked at the cows in one of the barns. Anybody else do that? They were huge. I mean, like ready for Sunday dinner kind of big, you know? And what those cows were fully unaware of is that their friends, who are the 4-H owners, and these cows thought they were friends, but these friends were about to betray them and sell them to the highest bidder. And in verse 17, it is as if Asaph is looking at a fat cow, enjoying a good life and good meals, but they're on their way to slaughter. They don't know it. And despite his earlier evaluation of their lives, Asaph can see where they are going and he realizes that he doesn't want what they're heading for. He can see their eternity and it is a dumb illustration, I know. And it's definitely too silly of language for Psalm 73, which is so severe. And people are definitely not cows. But the picture helps us to see that the reality of the person who is pursuing the world and not God is really just an illusion that ends very poorly. Asaph doesn't have an envy gnawing at his heart anymore. He knows where they're going. And because of that, he realizes his foolishness. Verses 21 and 22 say this, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He's saying, God, I was in error. It is as if he is stepping back and saying, Who do I think that I am qualified to question the judgment of God or the goodness of God? And what we see here is a strong biblical truth, and that is this, seeing God rightly, being in the sanctuary of God, helps us to see how foolish it is to view the world without considering God's judgment against sin and his gracious purposes for his people. Asaph then ends this psalm with verses 23 through 28, and they say this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. So as Asaph communed with the Lord, he began to see everything more clearly. He didn't just look into the future of the sinner and the foolishness of selfishness, but he was also able to see clearly the fullness of the Savior as well. He, he came to realize something as a child of God, and it's something that I want us to realize. God is not in the business of shortchanging us. God is not in the business of shortchanging people. He is not calling his people to a terrible life. Asaph ends the psalm with a description of how the fullness of pleasure in God far outweighs the fleeting phantom prosperity of the wicked described in the first part of this psalm. And I want us to hear this so clearly. With God, there is real joy. And with God, there is real pleasure. And with God, there is real delight. It doesn't mean that life is easy, but as a child of God, Asaph possessed spiritual blessings that towered above anything that sin could ever offer you. Asaph describes the faithfulness of God in verses 23 through 28. He said, God holds his right hand in verse 23. Think about that. God is with us. God gives his children his hand. I know not everybody in here has kids, but I have two little girls, and they keep getting bigger, but they will always be my little girls. And when they grab my hand, one, they're saying, Dad, I trust you, but two, and they don't know this, if anything were dangerous, I would never let go of their hand, even if they tried to pull away from me. Think about that. God has your right hand. That's crazy. Matthew 28, verse 20 said this to, of Jesus, or Jesus said this to his disciples, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Asaph also said in verse 24 that God guides him. In, in John 14, verse 16, Jesus tells his followers this, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. God counsels us by his Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Jesus described him as the counselor. Asaph also said in verse 24 that God would glorify him. He remembered the future of the wicked, but now he's remembering the future of the righteous. Those people who place their hope and trust in God. He anticipates what Jesus will later say in the Sermon on the Mount, and that is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And Asaph's ultimate conclusion after all of this when he's struggling with doubt, is this. God is good to him. He stated that at the beginning of the psalm, but now he knows it to be true. It is an incredible turnaround. He goes from feeling one way to seeing things a totally different way. He had almost stumbled when he perceived the wicked, but now with a new perspective, he concludes God is so good. And then in verse 25, he says, there is nothing on earth that he desires besides God. I was thinking this week, like, what, what would be so amazing if Hillside could just have a new building? I mean, like, more donuts. What would be so amazing for Hillside to have? And the thing that came to my mind legitimately was this. What if we could all say there is nothing on earth that I desire besides God? 
joy and peace and real delight and real pleasure in God and purpose. Asaph was there. How did he get there? How can we get there? What is it today that you and I should take with us as we leave? I have two things for us this morning as we close. And the first one is this. Where you stand determines what you see. Where you stand determines what you see. Asaph saw things in this passage from two totally different perspectives. And I personally believe that this entire psalm hinges on verse 17 where Asaph said, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, I was focused on myself. Up to this point, Asaph had been looking horizontally at what he could see for what he could never find unless he went vertical in his looks, the way he looked. He put himself in the sanctuary of God and what happened there He began to worship God and he started looking at God. He started to look up. Asaph started standing in a place where he could see God and he became satisfied with the giver of life. Here's where you and I get stuck when we want so badly to know the joy of the Lord. Because I believe that we probably all, whether you're a Christian or not, would like joy and peace and purpose in God. Here's where we get stuck. We find ourselves looking to created things for life and hope and peace and rest and contentment and identity and meaning and purpose and inner peace and motivation. We think a bigger house or a better car or a bigger bank account or more land or better jobs or a bigger degree or any of that kind of stuff will give us life. The problem is this, nothing in creation can give you the joy and the peace that God created you for. Why? Well, creation was never designed to satisfy your heart. Creation was made to be one big, gigantic neon sign that pointed you to the one who alone can satisfy your heart. But when we spend our days staring at stuff for satisfaction, then you and I get caught up in a lie that says that satisfaction in life and joy and purpose are outside of God. We pursue the creation instead of the creator, and the result is disastrous. And this morning, God is inviting all of us to know his joy and his peace and his purpose. He says, look to me. Put your faith in my son Jesus and look to me. Look at the cross. Joy and peace and purpose are found in relationship with God which all of you are allowed to have through His Son, Jesus Christ. So how do we begin to change our perspective today? How do we adopt this heavenly perspective that Asaph has at the end of this psalm? This might sound super churchy, and I'm okay with you feeling that way. Here it is. By prayer, ask God to show Himself to you. He will answer that prayer. I wonder how many of us miss that. Just say, God, I want to see you. By the Bible, God has given us the word. Get into the word. Study it. By grace, you have to know this. It is by grace that you are saved through faith. God is not calling you this morning to be completely perfect so that you can see him. 
depend upon his grace, pray to God, go to his word, and know that it's by his grace God wants to be in relationship with you this morning, and it has nothing to do with how awesome you are. And by faith, believe that God is good. Where you stand determines what you see. Asaph had to find a new spot. He went to the sanctuary of God. If we are struggling to see the goodness of God, maybe we need to change where we are standing. Maybe we need something new. The worship team can come on up. The last thing that I want to share with us this morning, and I promise it'll be quick, Beckett. we have to be in gospel-centered, godly community. We need Christian community. I, I can't even begin to explain to you how much this is true for me in my walk with God. Friends like Dan, shout out. Um, well, he texted me this week something very encouraging. I have mentors in Montana that consistently check up on me. And then I'm a part of this church. And I can't help but believe that when Asaph went to the sanctuary of God, he saw other people pursuing God. I know I've said it already this morning, but isolation in our faith makes us struggle to see God's goodness. Ray Ortland says, To choose to be alone is to invite sure failure. God gave us the church to glorify Him and to help us know Him better. And I want you to hear this so clearly this morning. If you're wondering, community matters in your pursuit of God. I know we've said it a few times. Your community matters. And if you are struggling today to see the goodness of God, let me gently ask you this question. Could it be because of who you are surrounding yourself with regularly? Is it possible that Your community is not helping you to pursue Christ. This may feel like a shameless plug, but Hillside this year, at Hillside this year, we're going to focus heavily on growing in community. And we believe that we grow best when we grow together. We don't, it's hard to grow on your own. Can I encourage all of you to get yourself into a gospel centered community? Would you consider joining a community group where you can struggle, you can doubt, but there are friends who know that God is good and loving and that he has what you need and he's going to point you to God. They're going to point you to God. Gospel-centered community is essential for us because in those settings, we will be with people that will lovingly point us in the direction of Christ. They will help us stand in a place where we can see how good God is. And my prayer for us is that Throughout this year, our perspective as a church will be what Asaph said in Psalm 73, verse 26. He said, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much again for your word. God, thank you for people like Asaph who struggled openly. God, thank you for the reality that His perspective changed when he came into your presence. His perspective changed when he moved towards your people. God, I pray this morning that we would be challenged to see you, to 
know your goodness inside of community. We love you, Father. Thank you so much for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.